Welcome to the Doctority Plastic Surgery Podcast. My name is Jenna, and in this series, I'll be speaking to plastic surgery residents and giving you an inside look at what it's like to train at their institution. We'll discuss the logistics, the leadership, and the lifestyle of a plastics resident at their program. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Zeeshan Mann, who's a fifth-year resident at Stanford University in Palo Alto, California. He's originally from the Bay Area. Zeeshan completed college and medical school at King's College London, and his primary academic interest is basic and translational research in regeneration and fibrosis. He's currently working on a peripheral nerve interface. Zeeshan, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me, Jenna. So I'd love to start by hearing kind of a big picture overview of your program structure at Stanford. Absolutely. So we have a seven-year integrated plastic surgery program at Stanford. We do three clinical years, and then there's a professional development year followed by another three clinical years. That professional development year can consist of a variety of options. We've had past residents do things like working for a startup company, more traditionally spending some time in the lab, doing one year of research, or pursuing an opportunity in global surgery through the lab fellowship at Stanford. What did you do during your professional development year? I was pretty boring. I ended up going back to the lab that I'd been in before residency for another year because my goal is to become a surgeon scientist. Still pretty cool. Sounded like you were able to use it to you know, move forward with your career goals. Absolutely. Yeah. I was uh, fortunate to set up a collaboration with the School of Engineering and we're working on developing a peripheral nerve interface. So I'd love to hear about how much plastics experience you get, more so in the first three years. So the interesting thing to know about this is that our program is constantly evolving in response to what are perceived as our educational needs, both by our faculty program director, as well as based on feedback from the residents themselves. And when I went through my first and second year, I had one month of plastic surgery in my PGY1 year, four months in my PGY2, and then from then on, we're full-time. However, due to recent changes, it's actually increased. So our first years now do three months of plastic surgery, and our PGY2s do seven months of plastic surgery. And then after that, it's all full-time. And what's the experience like when you're on some of those non-plastics rotations? I think actually it's a great experience overall. When we start, you start as a big class of general surgery, plastic surgery, ENT, orthopedics, vascular, and you go through your rotations as a collective. And it builds a sense of camaraderie and friendship amongst all the intern class and not a lot of people want to hear this when they're coming into residency, but the reality is, is your first year, your goals are to learn how to be a doctor, not necessarily learn how to do all the most complex operations. And so whether you're on general surgery or plastic surgery, the things you're learning are looking after sick patients and a lot of what we consider to be busy work, which continues even when you're in attending. So it's very important during that first year to learn how to look after sick patients, know when to intervene, how to intervene, when to talk to your seniors, and how to get work done and how to you know work through the system. And so though you will go into the OR and operate, I would say that the experience generally has been pretty positive with the people we work with and other services. The general surgery division in particular, which is part of the Department of Surgery together with us in vascular surgery, is very welcoming and open with the plastic surgery residents. And we're typically viewed as high-level residents and 
we're given a lot of good opportunities to both operate as well as provide care for patients in other ways. And what are the different sites that you rotate through? Our home at the start is Stanford Hospital. We now have a brand new site. There, 500P is the address, 500 Pasteur Drive, and it's called 500P. The older adult Stanford Hospital is called 300P. And so that's where our major site where we have our adult Stanford service. But we spend a significant amount of time at other sites, including the LPCH, the Lucille Packard Children's Hospital, which is continuous with the adult hospital. You don't have to go outside to get there. It's all connected. And we do our pediatric and craniofacial rotations there. And we also carry out some gender affirmation surgery in the under-18s in that hospital. We rotate at the Palo Alto VA Hospital, which is about 15 minutes from Stanford Hospital. We also rotate at Kaiser Santa Clara. For those who are less familiar, Kaiser is an HMO. And it's actually one of our best rotations. The breadth of the surgery we do and our involvement and the just quantity of surgery we do every week is just uh, fantastic. We have a county hospital, Santa Clara Valley Medical Center, which is a regional burn center, level one trauma center. And we do the full breadth of plastic surgery as well as burn while we're there. And we are there in our second year, our third year, and again as a chief. We also spend time at the famous Bunky Clinic in San Francisco, founded by Harry Bunky, considered by many to be the father of microsurgery. His son, Greg Bunky, continues to run that along with a number of other faculty, including Dr. Baba Ksafa, the recent Godina Fellow, and a number of other well-known and respected surgeons such as Dr. Rudy Buntik, Andrew Watt, and more recently, Walter Lin, and one of our previous residents, Dr. Brian Pridgen, is their newest member of uh, faculty. And are there any independent residents or fellows at any of the sites? We don't have any independent residents. It's uh, an integrated-only program. We do have fellows. We have two microsurgery fellows, and there are three hand fellows and one craniofacial fellow. In terms of how that impacts our experience, I would say minimally. We used to have three microsurgery fellows, and we reduced it to two, which has resulted in any concerns regarding any sort of uh, loss of cases to pretty much vanish, I would say. It's actually beneficial because the fellows take call for us while we're in our protected teaching, which is very helpful. And the Stanford Adult Service often has cases that go uncovered. And the chief resident is never missing out on the cases that they want to do. When there's like a lower extremity free flap or other cool or interesting case, you know, what will happen is it'll be the chief and maybe one fellow in that case, no more. And often in those cases, there's two different sites to operate on. And so you're not losing out on operative opportunity. With regards to the craniofacial fellow, the PGY-5, which is when we do our craniofacial rotation, is responsible for making the schedule. And so you actually assign cases both to yourself and the fellow. So obviously, you know, you want to make sure things are fair and balanced, but you're not playing second fiddle or losing out on things that you want to do or you need to do to meet your requirements for graduation. And the hand fellows, the amount of hand experience that we get during our rotation, I would say it's a top 1% in the country. And we come out very, very capable at hand surgery. And the hand fellows, when you're on the hand rotation, 
certainly are senior to you in the sense that they make the schedule and they know more than you. But the way the schedule works both operatively as well as in clinic, you're treated the same in terms of resource allocation. So it's either a fellow or a resident in certain cases. Got it. So you're not double scrubbed with the fellow. Usually there's enough to go around. Unless it's a very interesting case. Like if there's a politicization, then often you might be interested in scrubbing that case, even if the fellow is already there, because it's worth it. And there's a lot you can learn just by being either second scrub or just being there when you watch a master performing the surgery. You mentioned call briefly, but I'd love to hear about like what call is like and kind of the different call responsibilities over the course of training. So call also has change significantly. And I think it's an evolving area as well and in the right direction. It's with the purpose of improving quality of life and creating a greater balance for everyone. So as an intern, you don't take home call at all. Also, when you're on plastic surgery rotations as an intern, you're not in-house overnight. When you do your general surgery rotations, you will likely have in-house call, but that's normally segregated as a discrete block of night call. I think it's primarily for trauma, maybe for pediatric surgery. And then as a second year is when your call burden picks up and on general surgery, you'll be on consults, though that may have changed recently, that may no longer be the case. And that's when you start taking home call as a consult resident for plastic surgery as well. And uh, what that means is you operate in the day or are in clinic in the day, but then you'll be on call at night as well. And that's not every night of the week. It's typically two nights a week uh, at the most with that overnight call burden being shared by one of the other residents to offload you. And so there's a lot of cross cover to help alleviate that burden. And no one is on four nights a week night call anymore. As you become more senior, you start taking chief call. And so you're backing up the consult resident overnight. The consult resident's also covering the floor. When you're a PGY4, you take one night of primary call a week on most rotations. That's on the Stanford service to help offload the junior and give them some uh, rest. And then when you're doing your rotation at the VA, you're essentially on call Monday, Tuesday, Thursday night, but that's not a uh, trauma center at all. And the call that comes through the ED is minimal. You rarely get called overnight when you're on call at the VA. So that's sort of the call makeup. I would say our call burden is heaviest in the second and third year, but it's part of residency. It's part of the training process. I don't think there's any site where you don't take call. And if there are, then it's probably not good training. And what's the mid-level support like? On the Stanford Adult Service, we have a nurse practitioner who joins us for rounds at least four days a week and helps the intern with writing notes, putting in orders, liaises with case managers and other ancillary staff to make sure patient care is moving forward. That's, I think, where it's the most valuable. When you're on the craniofacial rotation, there's a nurse practitioner in clinic who is fantastic and coordinates everything in terms of follow-up and running our comprehensive craniofacial clinic. At Kaiser, there are nurse practitioners who help take call during the day to make sure you're free in the OR. And um, they also are in clinic. Your call burden for clinic in Kaiser is minimal. It's one day a week and it's uh, a solo 
resident clinic. There's attendings there to help you out, but it gives you a, a good opportunity to develop some independence, which we can also talk about. There's really good progressive independence throughout our residency. I would say overall, the mid-level support is adequate and the program's looking at areas where there might be deficiencies and looking to hire if we need it. But right now, I'd say we're pretty well positioned in that sense. To continue in that vein, I'd love to hear about, you know, how you think the program manages graduated resident autonomy. That's driven by two factors. There's one where there's a structured progression of independence through training and trust, but the other side of it is also based on the resident themselves and their ability to learn to take on that responsibility and ownership of patient care. So everyone by the end of the residency training program will have achieved enough independence to go into practice. That's without question. There are certain rotations that push you towards that with a safety net obviously still there. You know, no intern is going to be doing operations by themselves. Just, you know, we'll just put that to rest straight away. But by the time you're a third year, you know, you're treated as a mid-level resident. And the expectation is that there are components of the operation that you can perform independently. And a good example would be that when you're a third or a fourth year and there's a free flap breast reconstruction case going on, the expectation is that after you've been on service for a little while, that, you know, they can trust you to close the abdomen while they start setting up the micro or the inset. And that's not to say that you won't have an opportunity to do the micro as well. There's plentiful opportunities to do microsurgery, get under the scope on our rotation. In fact, I would say that most people who complete our residency don't need to do a micro fellowship. The only reason to do one would be if you know, the job you're looking for requires it. And so I think that the Structured independence is built in based on rotations that appear when you're more senior. Those rotations sort of require a certain amount of independent ability. And while there's always someone senior there to look over and provide, you know, help and advice as you need it, if you demonstrate that you're able to take ownership of the patients, that you have sound clinical judgment and that you're safe, they will allow you to do what you need to do and to provide care and to operate. Are there any opportunities to arrange elective rotations in the senior years? Not a complete elective rotation. I think that the American Board of Plastic Surgery doesn't fully allow for that, but there are certainly elective blocks. So I guess when you're a fifth year, you can spend one to two weeks at a different hospital. Our alumni association helps to fund your travel. So for example, because of my interest in peripheral nerve interfaces, I wanted to spend some time with Paul Sederna in Michigan, and I applied for and got funding to do so. Unfortunately, COVID intervened, and I haven't had a chance to travel there yet, but I will be doing so once we're able to. And we have mission trips that we go on. But in terms of a true elective block, I would say outside of our professional development year, no, you, you can't just like sort of design your own rotation. And are there annual trips that residents are able to go on with attendings? Yeah, absolutely. So starting 
I would say in your third year or your fourth year, you can go on a mission trip every year, which is one to two weeks. Resurge, which was formerly known as Interplast, spun out of Stanford. And Donald Lobb, one of our previous faculty, he's now sort of emeritus status, was heavily involved in setting that up. And now our uh, chief of our division, Dr. Jim Chang, is heavily involved with research as well. And the goal of that organization has transitioned significantly over the last few years. And increasingly, its focus is not to provide surgical care in countries, it's to build the necessary infrastructure to allow them to provide care for themselves. And so you know, it's not about going there and just like doing operations. It's about working together with the local faculty. Often it's an educational trip to help support the local surgical development. And research specifically has started funding surgeons from these developing nations to further their education, to travel to the U.S. and other countries to make sure that they have the necessary expertise to provide the care in their home countries. And so if you choose to do a mission trip with air quotes around it, what you're doing is working in that sort of setting. There are also mission trip opportunities outside of research, which might be a little bit more traditional that some residents go on based on relationships that individual faculty members have developed over time. A lot of this has been on hold because of COVID. So that's the unfortunate side is that it hasn't happened a lot recently. Then the other side of this is because of Dr. Laub's interest in this area, in his honor, there was a fellowship set up called the Laub Fellowship, which some of our residents have pursued as their professional development year option. And what that entails is working together with research. And I think you spend about half the year actually traveling to those various countries and working there. And then the other half of the year, you're working on research related to that or infrastructure and administration related to that together with research to help set up various projects to look at outcomes in terms of the projects that have been implemented in the past. I myself didn't do it, so I don't have a tremendous degree of inside knowledge, but it's a very exciting opportunity for anyone interested in global surgery. At what point during your training do you get most of your cosmetic experience? So historically, it was in our chief year. We have a four-month cosmetic rotation and a chief resident cosmetic clinic, which we can book patients into and operate on with the assistance of our adjunct faculty who work in cosmetic private practice or our core faculty who also do cosmetic surgery. But it has evolved so that now the exposure starts a lot earlier. Our second years spend time, as well as our third years, spend time doing cosmetics now. And so you get a couple months of exposure in second year and a couple months in our third year. We always had a rotation that involved us working with oculoplastics and the Mohs surgeons as well as the ENT facial plastic surgeons in our third year. But now we're also working with our cosmetic plastic surgery faculty in their private practice settings in those earlier years. So it's a growing area for us. And for the chief clinic, are you able to book cases like throughout the entire year or just during that four-month block? It's during that four-month block because there's two other chief residents who also want to take advantage of that. You have to share. 
And do you get experience with gender affirmation surgery? Absolutely. Right now, it's a little bit split in the sense that most of our top surgery happens at Stanford, whether that's male to female or female to male. And that's either at Lucille Packard for younger patients um, or it's on the adult side. In terms of bottom surgery, that happens primarily at Funky Clinic, which is one of the busiest phalloplasty sites in the country. They're doing two phalloplasties a week. That kind of experience, it's hard to find anywhere. We don't at the moment do penile inversion vaginoplasty and we our facial feminization experience is limited, but it's currently being built out. And we are looking to hire uh, another member of faculty to really build out our gender affirmation program at Stanford. And so the experience is only going to grow. And is moonlighting possible? It is possible if you are in good academic standing and you're not going to violate duty hours. What's the research experience like, both in terms of expectations and how you are able to like get support for your research? I think that the research opportunities at Stanford are incredible. It's pretty much unlimited. If you can think of it, you can do it. Whether that's basic science, translational science, or clinical outcomes research, we have NIH-funded faculty carrying out work in all those areas. And essentially, if you're willing to do the work, you can make it happen. And that can either be by joining projects or asking these highly productive and successful faculty members to help you come up with a project. Or if you come up with an idea yourself, you can discuss it with the faculty. And as long as it's uh, achievable and doable, they will be more than happy to help you move that forward. And so we have examples of our residents doing research at the highest levels, publishing in high-end journals, presenting at national meetings, podium presentations, winning prizes. Our Stanford Plastic Surgery Research Symposium is often a preview of PSRC. We tend to feature pretty heavily there. And so I think that if you have any interest in research, no matter what it is, we'll be able to help you out. And are there any extra like fun perks about your program you'd like to share in terms of things like loops or fancy scrubs or courses? Our program does buy a set of loops for each resident, and that's in your PGY2 year. So you can get a nice set of loops for free on the program. They'll pay for step three if you take it while you're a resident. We are probably the highest paid residents in the country. Our base salary combined with a number of extra bonuses that both our GME office, the Department of Surgery, and the Division of Plastic Surgery gives us because of housing costs in the area amounts to a salary of over 90000 right now. That's not what you get in your intern year, but it, you know, it builds up a little bit every year. That's with all the bonuses taken into account. There is resident housing available on site, which is subsidized, and it's cheaper on Welch Road, so just across the street from our main hospitals, our adult and our pediatric hospitals. When you're at Kaiser, there's a meal card. When you're at the Valley, there's a meal card. We have free parking at Kaiser and at Valley. At Stanford, you have to pay for your parking. 
If you have an abstract accepted for presentation at a meeting, the program will support you and pay for your registration, your flight, your hotel. And then one meeting a year, I think that starts in either your second or your third year, regardless of whether you're presenting or not, the program pays for all those things. And what area of plastic surgery would you say residents come out with the strongest experience in? I would say that microsurgery and hand are probably the two strongest areas for us. And that's just a function of the fact that we get to rotate at so many sites that expose you to those areas. I would say that um, you come out well-trained in every aspect, but those two are probably the areas that we have the greatest experience in. And how would you improve your program? It's uh, difficult to answer that question because in the last two, three years, we've changed it so much, making it better. I think that we're fortunate to have a very responsive program director in Dr. Paige Fox, who listens to the residents and is willing to engage and adapt. And we have a very supportive chief in Dr. James Chang, who works together with our program director and the residents as well to facilitate those types of changes. Because we've had so many changes recently, I'd probably wait a year or two to see how things settle out before I would think of what else to change at this point. And those changes are things like rotation switching around or like what kind of changes do you mean? Exactly. I would say it's a redistribution of call burden, introduction of a new resident. So now we have two classes that have four residents instead of three, our PGY1 and PGY2 class both have four residents now. And also the changing of the rotation structure so that our first and second years get a lot more plastic surgery and there's a greater cosmetic experience earlier. Was there anything else you wanted to add about your chief and your PD? My chief is amazing, Dr. Jim Chang. Not only is he heavily involved in global surgery and outreach through research, but he's a recent past president of the American Society for Surgery of the Hand. And he is the greatest supporter of his residents. And when you are applying for fellowship, he really goes to bat for you. And he runs a great division. And our program director is one of our former residents, Dr. Paige Fox, who's been now, I think, out of residency for about five or six years. And just over a year ago took over. And she is extremely easy to work with, dynamic, and she is a rising star and she's very engaged with the residents. And what role do residents play in department decision making? We're involved in screening applications. The chief residents are part of the interview process and have a voice similar to the faculty at that level. And all the residents have a say in giving their perspective on the applicants and coming up with, you know, the resident rank list, which the faculty look at. We're not sure how exactly they use it, but from what I've heard, it has a significant weight. And how would you describe the culture, the relationships amongst the residents? Well, COVID has put a serious dent in it, but our residents tend to hang out with each other quite a bit. If you just follow our program Instagram, as well as the Twitter, you'll see examples of residents going on hikes, getting meals together. And the program helps with that too. They have like a sibling 
program for junior and senior residents, and they cover the cost of like one meal a quarter between the siblings. And so there's a lot of structural support for it, but the culture is generally one of interaction and friendship. You mentioned you graduated from King's College London. So is the program generally welcoming to international medical graduates or non-traditional residents? That's a great question. And I would say yes. I would say that across the country, there's been a recent shift towards a greater recognition of potential and ability and looking for the best applicants regardless of where they're coming from. But I do think it's still a work in progress. And I would say Stanford in particular, one of our current faculty, Dr. Arash Mumaini, who you're going to hear his name all over the place. He's a rising star in breast reconstruction. But he was a German medical student before he came here and became a resident at Stanford and is now our member of faculty. I myself went to King's College London. And then we have Ruth Tevlin, who is one of our professional development residents now working in the Longacre Lab, who is from Ireland and is also an international medical graduate. So our program certainly is quite welcoming in that respect. And now a little bit about how residents live. So do most own or rent? I think most residents rent. I do think that ownership in this area is difficult, but I would argue that the benefits of ownership in a residency program are minimal unless you know you're going to be staying on as faculty there long term. Because if you just look at the economics of buying a house and how long most people would advise you hold it before it becomes an economically sound decision from the perspective of all the fees included with closing costs, etc., it's normally, they say, seven years that you should be holding a house before you sell it. And so unless you buy the day you start and sell after you finish, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And where do residents live in relation to where your main hospital is? I would say most residents live within a 10 to 15 minute drive. How does your program support residents who either have families or are planning families? Well, I have a 15-month-old son, and <laughs> we have had a number of residents who've had children in residency recently, and our program is extremely supportive. You get your parental leave, and they're very understanding. I was excused to attend ultrasounds and other appointments, and so wellness as a whole is a big focus of our program. You know, whether you have a dentist appointment or a doctor's appointment or other visit that you need to carry out, the program is very supportive of protecting you and allowing you to attend that. We don't have people who can't go and see the doctor or look after their kids. And what do you like about living in Palo Alto? Well, so I actually now live in Redwood City, which is about 10 minutes from Palo Alto, but I grew up in the Bay Area. I'm probably biased, but I'd say it's probably one of the greatest places to live in the, in the country. Our weather is amazing. You know, it never really snows here unless you want it to snow, you know, so you can drive to Tahoe, which is about three hours away, and you can go skiing there. We're about an hour from the beach where you can go surfing. We're about three or four hours from Yosemite National Park where you can go camping and hiking. We have whitewater rafting. We have fly fishing. We have every outdoor activity that you can think of with very temperate climate. We're in the middle of Silicon Valley and Biotech Bay. So we have everything you can think of in terms of 
technological opportunities in terms of if you have an interest in doing something outside of purely residency, if you want to work with a startup company locally. We have great restaurants, Michelin-starred restaurants. We have a great nightlife scene here and in the city. You can take Caltrain up to San Francisco or it's a 30 to 45 minute drive. So I'd say that a lot of stuff. Lifestyle-wise, it's amazing. And still able to participate in those things, even with a resident salary. Yeah, absolutely. You're you're probably not going to be, you know, dining at a three Michelin-starred restaurant every week. But I think, you know, if you have a reasonable expectation, yeah, you can participate in all the activities that you want. So that's pretty much everything I wanted to talk about today. Any final thoughts, either on your program or on the process of choosing a residency? Yeah, I think that there are a lot of great programs out there. Uh, I think the important things to identify are culture and fit for yourself and figure out what you're looking to get out of your program. And also keep in mind that it's not just the training. It's where you're going to be living your life for six to seven years. And you need to decide whether you're going to be happy because, you know, burnout is a real thing. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. It was wonderful. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Doctority Plastic Surgery Podcast. Never miss an episode by subscribing to our show via your favorite podcast service and following us on Instagram and Twitter. For more podcast episodes and residency information, check out our website, doctority.co. That's doctority.co. We love feedback from listeners, so please contact us through the website or through social media with your questions or suggestions. See you next time.